Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Where's Greg? Like, you know, brothers from another mother. Nice. How have you, honestly, how have you and I not crossed paths before? I'm very, like, uh, you know everyone I know. I feel like I ran across your profile. You look too clean cut for me. I'm like, you know, I'm like looking at your LinkedIn. I'm just like, oh, this is like somebody serious. I'm just like home gaming it. I'll I'll send you my YouTube videos. I'm anything but serious. We're live. Sorry. It's a, it's a, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not telling you to stop. I'm just, just uh, for the folks who are, who are just tuning in, uh, slightly different lineup today. JT is, is out camping and Bill is traveling back from Markel. So we've got some subs, uh, Thomas Brazil, who's a deep value bankruptcy specialist, special situations guy. How are you, Tom? How are you? Good to be here. I'll be JT you've, today. You've, got, you've, gone, you've gone quiet on me. And then uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, we, haven't, we haven't decided who's going to be who yet, but I'll be, I'll be playing myself in this one. And uh, we've got the great Corey Hofstein, quant extraordinaire. I called you global macro before, but how do you, how would you describe yourself, Corey? Uh, I would definitely just lean into quant and then say uh, derelict tourist of many other depraved forms of investing, I suppose. You, you've gone, you've, you've got the new pirates of finance uh, podcast, which I love. And with, Thank you, uh, with, with Jason Buck, so you guys have gone. You guys are gone vol and crypto. You guys are. There's no. There's nothing that you won't talk about on that podcast. There's nothing sacred at the moment. I mean, look. You you know how it is. Like when you're in investing, at least for me, I love exploring all these other ideas of investing. And very often, I don't get a chance to talk about them. When when you run a fund or a strategy, like you sort of everything you publish is on the narrow of of what you do. But it doesn't mean you're not interested in other stuff. So Jason came to me with this idea of. Hey, let's put together a show that's a little less serious, hopefully a little bit more fun, 10 minutes a week of, of content on whatever we want. So, you know, last week was uh, a crypto cash and carry trade that, you know, is, is a little bit, uh, what's the word I want to use? Uh, makes me a bit of a degenerate running it, but it's fun. <laughs> and hopefully people laugh. And so it's, it's appropriate that you're pirates of finance, which is pirates of Penzance, right? Is that the... Is that the- it is illusion. one of the first comments we got was someone telling us how arrogant we were to pronounce finance as finance, and I was like, hey, "You don't get the joke then." <laughs> so, but you're you're usually in the uh, Caribbean, or is it Caribbean? So, it's whatever you want it to be. <laughs> yeah, I've been hide. I've been I've been squirreled away in Grand Cayman for a couple of months now. I'm actually back in the states for for a little bit for a wedding, but my wife and I. Uh, decided we'd had enough of, of Venice, California when the pandemic hit and did that very cliche thing of picking up and moving somewhere else. And uh, a couple of the Caribbean islands are offering these work from home visas. So you can just pick up awesome. and move to Barbados or Bermuda. Grand Cayman was offering one. So we were early to apply and put all of our stuff in storage and packed two bags and headed to live that beach life. Nice. And Tom, you're in, you're in the same deal, right? You you were you're normally London based. You're American, but you're normally London based. Yeah, and now you're in Italy for the same reason. Yeah, similar reason. Although I have to comment on all these connections. Okay, so Corey, you're you're you have this pirate podcast. You're wearing your shirt, by the way, says shipwreck on it. I believe. Yeah, shipwreck rum. <laughs> and you're hanging out in the Caymans. I think there's a, like a theme going on here. It's like I think you're like out. You're like. So, so not to interrupt, but when I was younger, my people used to ask me what I wanted to be. And I said, there's two things I want to be. One was either a pirate or the second, my father was an entrepreneur. I always said I wanted to be a businessman. So my mother finds it hilarious and ironic that I ended up in finance, which she considers to be sort of the intersection of business and piracy. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. 
Last Nine. time I was in the Caribbean, I was on a, I was, this sounds really grandiose, but it's not at all. I was on a yacht with Chris Cole. <laughs> and it was fun. My wife, similarly, she wanted to work a bit, the work a bit. My wife wanted to marry a pirate, so she married an Australian, which she says is about as close as it, about as close as you can get in the modern day. Same accent, at least. Yeah. 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 A land pirate, I suppose. Land pirate. So uh, there's, I, I don't know how, let's, let's start. The, how do you guys approach this sort of market where there's, it's been, it's been a long, it's been five years of pain and suffering for value guys. And uh, we might've like had a little turn, maybe fingers crossed sort of somewhere in November, September last year. It didn't really help me much until sort of more into this year because the, that, that rally in value last year, I thought was more of a junky rally in value. And it, you know, I try to be more high quality value. Corey, you're sort of considering that from a, from a factor level. What, what, what did you, what do you see happening? And I, I should give a shout out to your, you've got this great newfound uh, page on your newfound website uh, where you've got the factors and it shows the performance over the last rolling year, three years, and then the the holdings yeah, of them, which I love. It's kind of a hidden page. I don't even think we link to it anywhere, but it still gets. I use it all the time. Day. I've yeah. got it hard for those in the my... know. It, it exists, but um, it's been a it's been a weird year. So, uh, and, and in particular, if we just focus on 2021, the except for maybe the last two days, the the sort of top line returns have been very placid. Realized volatility in the S&P 500 has been fairly muted. And yet the undercurrents have been incredibly violent. If we look at, say, a basket of retail favorite stocks or SPACs or EV thematic type stuff, it spiked for the first six weeks and then has gotten absolutely wrecked. Uh, we've seen a huge rotation between growth and value. We've seen momentum move dramatically away from sort of your defensive growth names into your cyclical names. We've seen high quality stocks have some of their worst performance in the last 20 years relative to junk stocks. And yet we're not seeing any of that at the top level volatility. It's been one of the highest cross-sectional volatility environments in the last 20 years. And so you're getting, you know, when you look at performance between managers, huge dispersion based on where they've been concentrated. What, what do you attribute that to? That's very odd, isn't it? To have that sort of, that's one of the things I keep on, I zoom back out on, on the spy every now and again, and I'm just astonished at how smooth and upward sloping it is, given that you can look at anything, like look at the, the tech ETFs, they're absolutely destroyed. I guess it's, is it because it, FANG is kind of still pretty strong in there? Is that what's holding everything up? Well, Fang, Fang is definitely still pretty strong, but Fang has largely gone sideways for six months. I think I probably have what I would consider to be my serious Corey's on a panel answer and then my like fun conspiracy theory answer. Okay, you know, both. My, my serious Corey's on a, on a panel somewhere in a suit and tie is that if you look post-COVID, there was a very strong transition into companies with strong balance sheets. And these companies were tended to be profitable growth names that could survive in a work from home environment. They tended to be large cap names because it's easier for them to raise debt. And you got this huge divergence um, w- between all the factors. Normally, if you say the pantheon of factors is your you know size and value and momentum and quality, they normally act in a fairly uncorrelated manner. Last year, they sort of split in half and became super correlated within the groups, and the two groups became super uncorrelated from each other. And that persisted until around November when it became more certain that there was light at the end of the tunnel, that you didn't need to just stick in the quality names anymore, that the junkier names, there was going to be a reopening. They were going to be able to sort of cross the chasm that was covid and I think what you're seeing potentially is just this huge repositioning. So that's one part of it, which was you had everyone going to the obvious play and the safe play. And then you get this violent repositioning that sort of takes a while um, to manifest. The other part of it that I, I don't, 
you know, sort of a joke, sort of a conspiracy, sort of semi half truth for me is there is a lot of capital sloshing around, particularly with retail and retail is sort of like in a way like the eye of Sauron right now. It like when it turns its eye on something, you better hope you're not holding it. And so we saw it with GameStop and that type of huge retail focus inviting institutional attention has big knock on effects for how a lot of institutions have to be allocated, the type of risk they're allowed to take, force de-risking that's going to occur. And it's not just retail. I mean, we saw Archegos blow up at the end of Q1. So I think you're getting these sort of violent repositionings where it's more of a, to steal a quote from Tracy Alloway, a flows over pros type market right now. I asked you this at the time because I was, I just DM'd you this a few months ago, but I was like the, you know, if after a crash, it's very common to have momentum break down for about 12 months afterwards. And then like coming up on that, it's sort of whatever, it just kind of starts working again for whatever reason coming up on the anniversary. And so I said to you at the time, like, isn't this just a completely normal breakdown in momentum? And then aren't we now just seeing it all start working again? And it, it seemed to be two quarters of, it was tough for anybody who's got any kind of momentum in their strategy at all. And then it seems to me like it's just started all like, isn't this what you'd expect to see after a crash? Value starts working, momentum breaks down for a bit, momentum starts working again. Isn't this just a totally normal kind of market? I, I love, I'll steal another phrase um, from Andrew Lapthorne from SockGen, who said, value is a basket of all the world's problems, but a call option on hope. <laughs> I think a lot of people think of value from, from the dot-com days and think of it sort of as being you know, this moat in your portfolio. But I think the dot-com era was really the exception to the rule. That was a so scenario. Unusually high quality. Unusually high quality. Exactly. That was a scenario where the quality factor and the value factor merged. That is typically not how value behaves. So I think you do see this jump in value in a recovery, right? Because you're buying garbage for the most part. Stuff that seems like it's at the end of its you know, rope, it's, it's that cigarette butt. Can you get one last puff out of it? And then all of a sudden, Talking about my name. So, so right. <laughs> and then you get Talking that glimmer of sacks. hope, right? That glimmer of hope, which you don't need it to actually go up. You just need that sort of like first derivative to turn around. It just needs to get less bad. And that all of a sudden allows for a very sudden repricing because these things are call options effectively at that point. And so they can become super explosive moment. And, and with that, right you get typically a reversal in momentum because momentum's probably not owning those names. In fact, it's probably short those names and momentum, which is just going to buy the recent winners and sell the recent losers. You end up in a scenario where by definition, when the momentum factor isn't working, it's just going to flip what it owns, right? Yeah. So if all the losers are now winning and all the winners are now losing, it's just going to flip. And, and that's what you're seeing with momentum today. For the last five years, momentum and, and growth were synonymous. That is not true anymore today. Momentum has moved strongly towards cyclicals. I did remember you saying that to, uh, uh, probably a year, I guess in COVID time, I'm not entirely sure, but it was like the last couple of years, you said to me that that could happen, that value could become momentum. And I thought, gee, that would be, can you imagine I'd just about die of happiness if that happened? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what about, Tommy, you're, you're kind of a, you're, you're sp- I don't want to label you the wrong kind of label, but your special situations, but you kind of started in a bankruptcy type scenario. What, what, what do you do in a market where you've got not much sort of, not many people going bankrupt? There's not, what, 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 how do you confront this market? I mean, there were, there were some, there were some, there were some bankruptcies, some pretty sizable bankruptcies pre COVID um, or I shouldn't say pre COVID, but sort of in the earlier part of COVID and, and there still are some now. Um, I don't know. I, I don't have a golden. Uh, but what, what, do you, what do you do in a market like this? What, what are you kind of, are you still trying to hunt for those for very myself, specific? I think there's a ton of great special sit stuff out there. Um, you know, predominantly, you know, we're running, we run capital for basically private distress deal um, type stuff. Um, but it sort of, I actually, someone sent me the Markel thing yesterday that Bill was on. And uh, I thought he had a very interesting take on it, which is, you know, you know, you sort of bring your unique perspective to the markets. And you know, for me, like there's, you know, there's a lot of special sit stuff out there. And, um, 
I don't know. I, I, I think there's a, there's a lot going on. You know, maybe it's not scalable for institutional investors. And it's definitely not like a factor-driven approach. I mean, this is some of these special sits can fall into buckets that look a lot like uh, like, a, like a deep value. And then I'm sure some of them can look kind of garpy. And I kind of like both of them, depending upon the flavor of it. I suppose that's like the the, the craft of if you're doing like a bottom-up portfolio. And how, how do you find a garpy special situation? What's a garpy special situation look like? I mean... Sounds like see. a special, Garpy. special situation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I don't know. A Garpy special situation would be like, you know, a relative value uh, special sit. There's a transaction, a corporate action. Because I define sort of, you know, to me, a special sit is like a corporate action. And then the, the valuation overlay would be like, okay, is this a value or growth? Is this a Garp? What is this? And, and sometimes you can find like growthier or Garpier uh, special sits. I mean, there's one that was support.com, which is basically a net net. NetNet guys rolled out of it. They did a crypto mining deal. So, of course, you know, NetNet guys were like, oh, wow, okay, we, we doubled, let's get out. And um, and then, you know, you have kind of crypto people that won't touch it until it's sort of fully baked transaction. But if it does, it's somewhere probably between a two to three to four, you know, maybe maybe more, maybe 5x of just on comp valuation. So to me, that's a special sit. But that's Garpy, let's be honest. I mean, yeah. the comps you're using are insane. Uh, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be there. I'm not, not passing judgment. I'm just saying that, you know, there's no way you could describe, uh, the, the comps you're using as, as a, as a value comp, like in an absolute, like, you know, oh, I'm making, you know, 10% free cash flow yield. Like, no, like that's not, that's not happening. Um, Support.com was in my, was in my small micro screen for a while. No, it was in my, it was the smallest in the small micro. It It was Twitter. No, I don't think, I don't think I ever did hoover it up. It's just one of those you ones. Know, Sometimes I'm just so deeply embarrassed by the names that that thing spits out that I, I just kind of look at them. I think I remember looking at sport.com because you, you have like an automatic tweeter or something, an automatic Twitter, like, you know, yeah. like the best blah, blah, blah from yeah. our screen is this. My I little bot screen, picks it up. By the way. Yeah. And uh, I, so I, I looked at it and I was like, oh, I hate that company so much. Like I, I, like I even kind of tweeted out how much I hated it. But you've tweeted out a few that were really good gems. Like, uh, what was a good one? It was well, it picked Sims. up GameStop too. Did it keep up GameStop? It uh, picked up yeah, GameStop, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a battleground stock for a I while. Wouldn't have had the, I wouldn't have had the way holes to put that on. I don't think so. Although was, I do love, you know, the guy. He's great. It was net net. Um, I mean, it was it was net cash. You had to you had operating leases in there. And it was, you know, everybody you talked to could tell you why it was a dying business. No one wants to go in and buy the physically in the store. They all want to download them. Why do you feel like the net net inventory, right? It's like, it's a net net. Oh, but because of inventory, that's like always one of those. Oh stories. yeah. That's, that's tough. Well, that was the scariest thing about when, uh, the, uh, the two, now I'm going to forget which suit coat it was, but I think it was Joseph A. Banks was like a perennial net net because oh, they had net huge, you were, <laughs> you, you were basically buying suits. Suits that nobody wanted. Yeah, that, that always yeah. made me a little bit uncomfortable. And there was also John Hampton had this short out on it saying that he thought that there was, because they had, that, you know, it was a, such a huge asset and it was such a weird, like they justified it by saying if somebody walks into a store, they want to be able to buy the suit that they want. And Hampton said, that's just weird that they have so much inventory and suits. There's something else going on there. We never so as the, guy, uh, as the guy who's never done net net then, uh, inventory seems like it could go both ways. There's certain businesses where you might say that I want to mark this inventory to zero, right? Yeah. And right. there's other businesses where the inventory might be worth a ton in liquidation. So, I mean, Toby, you've done net net purely on screening. Uh, do you think, are there ways to, to work that idea in, or do you just sort of have to go in by hand? Not only that, there are net nets that are not net nets. So like companies will have, you know, you know, who famously said this was, um, no, his name's escaped me. Third Avenue Value. Yeah, Marty Whitman. Name. Marty Whitman has a great yeah, quote. Yeah, Marty Whitman's famous for saying that, like, oh, these guys own Fifth Avenue Real Estate. If you're telling me that's not a net net, you don't understand what Ben Graham's trying to do, which is, like, I could sell these buildings by making five phone calls. Of yeah. course, I got him into trouble buying a bunch of, like, Asian real estate companies. So let's just forget that for a second <laughs> and focus on the actual idea. Because it's a powerful idea. Because one of the net nets that worked out quite well for myself was it wasn't a net net, but it was a net net. And when I tried to explain to someone why, because it had real estate that was for sale, it was, it was industrial real estate that they could easily sell, and that was going to be converted in cash in the next year, they were like, "Oh, that's a slippery slope, Tom. Like you're not, you're breaking the rules." I was like, but "That's what you're supposed to do. The rules are there to just kind of guide." Sub liquidation value. 
It's subliquidation yeah, value. That's okay. And then I think Graham, Graham specifically talks about uh, uh, land and property, plant and equipment, a few other things like that. He just, he just applies a bigger discount, but it, that might not be appropriate as Marty Whitman. The, the Whitman quote is something like, he says, if you've got, you know, grade A real estate that's fully tenanted right. in like a business district, you can pick up the phone and sell it tomorrow. Right. And he also says that a lot of things can be assets and liabilities, as Corey was saying, right? So there are a lot of things that can be, it looks like a liability is actually an asset and vice versa. Um, and people don't appreciate that because, I don't know, they just sort of like, they want to cookbook it. And What's you know, an example of an asset, of a liability that looks, that is a, actually an asset? Operating lease. An operating lease. Below yeah. market operating lease. Yeah, I mean, the, That's what you're saying. Yeah. the whatever, the, the, the Sears, I mean, oh, no, I'm not Sears complex. All right, I'm going to get murdered here. I, I, when I told when, when, when Toby said, I was, you know, Hey, you have time. Let's go on the podcast. I was like, wait, am I getting brought before like the value tribunal here? Is there something that I've done wrong? <laughs> talk too much about Bitcoin or something. Uh, um, anyway, I'd only talk uh, about crypto if I wanted a, a, an absolute shit ton of followers. I'm trying to keep the podcast really small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyway, crypto is a whole other subject, but uh, there, I think that there are even crypto net nets and things like that. And, you know, is that special sit? Yeah. Okay. Some of it is very special city to me. It's the special sit is like, is the, is the sort of not only soft, but like a really hard catalyst that's going on and you can find different flavors. I don't really do this whole top down thing. I just like special. Sit. I like event driven stuff because it's fun. It's interesting. And there's, there's a feedback loop so I can get something out of that as a human. Um, you know, when you start talking, when you start talking about, uh, you know, things where the feedback loop is like 10 years from now, it's like, okay, great. You were right about Amazon and now you're dead because it's 30 years later or your business is out of, you know, it's, 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 I'm not saying it's not interesting. It's just, just quite hard to get a feedback loop that, with any sort of like, you know, any sort of, not, I don't say scientific precision, but you, Corey, you get the idea because of quantitative, like it's sort of like, there's, there's no like, this worked, this didn't, why didn't it work? Um, you get a lot of at bats yeah. with special sets. Right. I had Dan Zwern on the podcast, I think in the, in the one that's currently out now. And he's got a I great line. Part of it. He's a great think? investor. He's the scariest, yeah. scary, smartest person I've, I've chatted to for a long time. But he, he had this great line where he says, um, I believe in the voting machine, weighing machine analogy. I just like to bring the weighing machine to the, uh, to the table, like on the, on the date. <laughs> nice. Because they do a lot of, nice. you know, they do they'll do anything really credit or equity, but they want, they want that hard catalyst somewhere and they, they take warrants and do other things like that. So he's trying to build out like a Berkshire Hathaway, uh, uh, Chung Kong holding. So he gave me Lee Cashing. Do you guys know, do you know anything about Lee Cashing? No, a little bit, but not names familiar, but he's the, he's Superman Lee in, uh, I think he's Hong Kong based. He started out selling plastic flowers in a, and now he's 92 and he's one of the wealthiest men in the world. And he's got a similar, very similar investment approach to Buffett's where he's, you know, unlevered 10% free cash flow yield on the asset side and then trying to manage the cost of capital to, to make it as cheap as possible on the liability side. And um, it's very hard to find much information about him. You can read the you can read the uh, the annual reports, but it's hard to get much out of it. So I've, I've found a really old biography, um, it's, but I, I don't know anything. I haven't got it yet. I mean, West Dame, you know, Zorn, West Zorn's Dame. basically public. Yeah. Buy the stock. Do you, do you look at it? Do you like it? I don't own it. Uh, you know what's funny about that stock? I always tell people it's uh, my favorite security. It, uh, it's a... Uh, one of the best ideas I've ever ha- that I've lost the most money on because <laughs> uh, I, it's a long story, but they had bought before they bought or back, they bought, they sort of put Dan in back in business. Cause he, you know, when he went through the SEC thing, I don't know if he went to the podcast cause I didn't want the whole thing, but he sort of like, you know, it was a little bit of a hard, hard to touch kind of an untouchable and, and the guys Cam McDonald and, and the guys at West Dame sort of put him back in business. That was a good transaction. I like that. Um, but West Dame before that had backed, thing called houston international or hig uh houston international insurance group which is the uh stephen way and his son uh, there stephen way was a very famous insurance guy he compounded book value at 22 percent or something at um houston um the name's gonna escape me hcc like houston casualty corp which is then sold 
but that was like a very like a great story. So it was like, so, so, so I knew the guys at HIG and I saw the transaction at Westing. So I knew about Westing before arena did a transaction. And then when I saw the transaction, I was like, Oh man, this is great. And I, you know, plowed into the stock um, and uh, nothing happened. Uh, <laughs> the stock forgot. I owned it. I was like, what's the- it? I, I bought everything I can buy go up now. Um, but uh, there are a lot of people upset about, not that I didn't mention, I didn't, I didn't talk to him about the SEC stuff, but he's, there's a, he, he's been exonerated. He's got the two letters in loose sight on his desk from the SEC yeah. saying he did nothing wrong. So I'm inclined to take that I mean, as the. I mean, I think, yeah, you got to like, you know, we have a competent court that, uh, that exonerated him. I mean, you know, I think I, I have some people, I, I know some people that were investors or knew him back when these weren't in some people think he's great. Some people think he's, um, polarizing more aggra- molar, more aggressive than they like in terms of uh you know marks <laughs> uh but uh but that's you know the stress world is, is full of that kind of stuff honestly um you know i feel bad i feel bad for you guys you have to actually use a mark that's public yeah what's it like market to whatever you want I, I have some friends who are who are bond guys who, who like do a lot of off the run bond stuff, and when they tell me about selling stuff in there, that just sounds terrifying. You got to call people up and say, you know, what's the market on this thing without telling them which way you want to trade, and they give you the. I mean, that's why people use brokers. Like, there's there's not an inner dealer broker market, but there are a lot of brokers that people use because you don't want to sell it on a name basis. But I don't really do that stuff. The stuff we do is even more off the run because we're basically buying, uh, for the most part, we do dip loans, their obsession loans, and. And was that a, I'm going to get on Corey for not for not producing any academic research on these topics because I think the returns are great and more people should know about it because you know eventually it'll go away. But and uh, to be fair, like a lot of distressed guys have made tons of money doing some of this stuff. But you know, like a dip loan market and the trade claim uh, space, which is probably only ten or twenty firms that do it, um, and of that, ten are brokers and probably ten have actual proprietary capital. And trade claims are just you know basically if Hertz goes bankrupt and they owe Corey a hundred thousand dollars for his consulting, uh, you know, I'll call Corey up and say, Hey, Corey, you know, these guys, they'll they use this money, you know, couldn't use this in your business. I'll buy it for two cents on the dollar or whatever. Um, Hertz has gotten, of course, very competitive. Um, but that's what we've been, that's what we've been doing this cycle. But I still, I love hearing all the top down stuff. How confident are you when that you're going to recover closer to 100 cents on the dollar? I mean, how, how do you, how do you make that assessment? Um, I'm sure it's easy to buy that stuff. I just wonder how you, I mean, I, I don't want to. It's not as easy as you think because yeah, I think everyone just views it as homogenous. And I think even a lot of the players in the space think of it as being like, uh, did I say homogenous? Homogeneous, I guess. We're going to go with homogeneous. We've been homogenous. finance, finance, finance Caribbean, finance, Caribbean. Finance. Anyway, okay. So, uh, and it's not. And that's where you can really add a lot of value is knowing the, the, the legal frameworks well enough to be able to sort of rifle in and out and add value not on both sides of the transaction if you're buying it, but also to sellers that might need liquidity and you're able to structure something that really works for them. So it is, it is kind of like a consulting solution providing. I think if you view it that way, you can add a lot more value. Just in the same way you guys would approach your clients like, how can I add value to their lives, not just sell whatever the hell I want to sell, which is what a lot of the trade claim guys in the historically have done, which is just like, Hey, they get on the phone. They like call you up like a boiler and they're like, Hey, uh, you know, they're never going to pay you. And these guys are deadbeats. Like we'll buy it, blah, 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 blah. And that, that was the pitch. And uh, you know, we've sort of eaten their lunch by doing it differently. Like we approach people and say, Hey, this is what's going on in the case. This is a disclosure statement. This is when Hertz is going to emerge. They're saying they're going to pay this. We can, we can factor your claim. We can buy your claim. We can offer different solutions, whether it's recourse, non-recourse, limited recourse. Um, you know, we can, you know, so the idea is to be more of a solution provider, just like you guys taking lunch from larger companies that don't want to tailor to certain com- customers because they're like, oh, there's not enough market in that. There's not enough AUM in that or something. And you're like, yeah, I think there is. Uh, anyway. You want to talk about crypto for a little bit? Because uh, the, the crowd wants some crypto net net commentary. Ooh, yeah, that one that like, one piqued my interest. <laughs> oh yeah, so there there are a number of crypto sort of net net situations. Um, sometimes they're not necessarily net nets, but they're pretty dang close. 
um, when I say net nets, it's not fiat cash, it will be like Bitcoin net net, or, real money. uh, Ethereum, uh, yeah, the real money, uh, real hard money. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting because Corey, you and I were talking just before we started about, um, like, you know, risk pairing and stuff like that. I, I assume like all you guys, all you factor guys, I assume you're starting to put crypto in your models. I hope. You really no? can't. Because yeah. there's not enough data. Well, it's not just that there's not enough data. From a regulatory perspective, it's very hard to get even just spot crypto into a client account. Uh, and so you can't you can't build in your systems as well right now. I yeah. So for example, right now I can mess with a lot of the offshore exchanges because I'm a Cayman resident. Once I come back right. to being a U.S. resident, I'll get shut out of all those systems. And so you, I mean, I mean, and I'll also say I, talking to other institutional Call managers. BPM, Corey. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> the problem is the the problem is the KYC. To be honest, it's it's the VPN can right. get you access, but like systems like FTX.com, if you don't go through the KYC, the most you can take off per day is between two and nine thousand dollars. I mean, you're certainly not going to manage an institutional account only being able to withdraw nine thousand dollars a day. So, yeah. but the reality is, even uh, look from an institutional perspective, you have sort of adverse incentives here. What's the upside to adding a little crypto in the portfolio? Some excess return. Great. What's the downside? You lose all the money because you mishandled the crypto or there was an exchange hack or you didn't hard, you know, like hard wallet it correctly. Or there's so many things that institutions feel uncomfortable with right now that there isn't a good on-ramp. And and don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. there are, if you start to look for them, very good solutions. But until the regulatory environment loosens up and really allows um, people to invest in these offshore exchanges or the onshore exchanges become as attractive as the offshore exchanges, I, I think it sort of be, it remains a non-U.S. endeavor. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I was thinking that you were saying more like when you build them in your factor models or any sort of risk parity models or tactical asset allocation models, it's like impossible because the data is not deep enough. And, no, you, you can uh, definitely get get the data for sure. You can definitely get the data. TV, and um, and look, I mean, in certain like if you're running a hedge fund, there are ways in which you can get access. There are funds now that are including <clears throat> the uh, CME Bitcoin futures, and there the yeah. mini futures now give you better access. But uh, you got to put up a lot of collateral. It's not a cheap trade. Yeah, that's the thing is I, I hate those things because the collateral is in, enormous. I, 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 of course, t test all these things out just for fun. And I'm just like amazed at the collateral. Um, you know, we, we got sucked into crypto through distress stuff. Um, and it's worked out incredibly well, not just because of the stress, but really because of the rise to get the double air. But in crypto, crypto net, net, there's stuff out there. There's like, I, I think I mentioned it recently on another podcast. It's a... Uh, one of the interns. Okay. The interns are getting younger and younger. One <laughs> <laughs> of those interns. Uh, and they eat a lot of ice cream. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but uh, let's see. Yeah, so Nexus Mutual is one that I think is super, super interesting. So, so let me explain what it is. It's basically like an uh, uh, insurance for DeFi contracts, if, if that sounds like obligoop. Uh, but uh, it's basically insurance for, you know, this distributed finance or decentralized finance, excuse me, um, protocol like lending. And, uh, you know, basically trades close to book value. And, you know, you get a company that's growing at 300% quarter over quarter, which in any stretch of the imagination, like I think, I think I was using at one point, I was saying, okay, so Lemonade, I can't remember what Lemonade trading app, but trading at like, I don't know, 10 or who knows what, you know, multiple of revenues trading at. And yet you're buying this thing around uh, net net. Now it's, it's, it's hard because you have to get into crypto. So you have to like, you know, buy Ethereum and then convert into, uh, I think it's called NRX. I can't remember what Nexus Mutual. I can, we can post it in the comments. Uh, but uh, actually I can look it up real quick. But um, then you have to like, if you want to join the mutual, uh, you have to like go through, not KYC, but there is some sort of requirements you have to do. Um, I love trades like that. I love trades that require actually like work. Corey, I've got a question here for you uh, about asset allocation given valuations and 
potentially inflation coming? Do you have any, I know you're, I know you're not sort of, you're not necessarily running it on that basis, but do you have any thoughts? I mean, what do you? Yeah, things are going to stay weird. That's, that's my thesis. I mean, What's causing I, the weirdness? Uh, I think it's, it is for me aggressive hard. central banks. Yeah, aggressive central banks, flight to passive, concentration in a bunch of systematic strategies that are all highly correlated. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of things. Giving retail investors access to new asset classes and then giving them a whole bunch of money and un- untapped leverage. When Investors you put it like that, the market as a savings vehicle, seeing target date funds go from eight billion to three trillion in fifteen years. I mean, you, there's a lot of things that have changed in the market over the last fifteen years that could make it weird. Um, you know, I think it's easy to point to what's happening in the commodity complex right now and say, "There's inflation. There's inflation. Look at lumber. Look at copper. Look at what's happening." Uh, you know, with the ten-year versus copper. Um, I think the problem is it's hard to disentangle those between what was an obvious mismatch in supply and demand shocks, right? You had uh, supply take a dramatic decrease in a lot of these commodities during COVID. And then all of a sudden, especially like the home improvement related commodities, right? Had a positive demand shock that a lot of people didn't expect. And you get these bullwhip effects throughout the entire you know, production chain. It's hard to know whether those bullwhip effects are going to be persistent um, or whether they're just going to be transitory and whether what's happening within a market like lumber is ultimately due less to, you know, money printing and that sort of thesis and much more to just the effect that, look, you had a large structural decline in production pre-COVID. You had an immediate, immediate collapse during COVID. And then all of a sudden everyone started going to Home Depot. Like, it's going to take a while for these things to equalize. So I don't have strong views on inflation right now. I, I tend to lean a little bit more towards there's going to be a money, a lot of money sloshing around in the system everywhere. And what you're going to see is that it's just going to get siphoned off onto corporate balance sheets where it'll act like a black hole because they don't have enough good projects to spend the money on. And you won't ultimately end up seeing a whole lot of inflation. It'll just sort of end up on the black hole of balance sheets as it has over the last 10 years or so. Um, Valuations are an interesting question because sort of to that point when you just sort of put a bunch of money in the system and the money has to go somewhere it ultimately is probably again going to end up on in corporate earnings and corporate balance sheets. And you might've just structurally increased what the market should be trading at. There's only a a limited supply of assets out there. And and if you increase the supply of dollars, those assets go for a higher price. Is that why, do you think that has any influence on the the crypto run? I mean, how much of the crypto run is speculation? How much of it is, you know, people consciously trying to get out of dollars into dog dollars. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't know if you can look at Doge and say it's it's a well-thought-out anti-inflation play. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people have been saying that about Bitcoin, but the Bitcoin narrative changes year to year, for better or worse, right? It either, like, it's sort of this interesting cognitive dissonance play where it's like, you have to keep believing new things to keep justifying Bitcoin, and yet Bitcoin keeps working. So maybe there is something there. I Again, another area that I for full disclosure, have some personal holdings in crypto, but not a tremendous amount, nor with incredibly strong conviction. I look at things like what are, if you do go to these offshore exchanges, there's two different types of futures contracts. There's sort of your standard fixed maturity. You know, you buy it today, it expires in September. And there's another type that's called a perpetual that either resets every hour, four hours, every eight hours. Those perpetuals come with a funding rate. So basically, you know, if the funding rate is negative, your longs pay your shorts. And if it's positive, your shorts pay your longs. And the basic idea is that funding rate should help incentivize the other side of the trade when there's a lack of people who want to be short or a lack of people who want to be long. What you're seeing right now is those funding rates are annualizing between 20 and 40%. In other words, if I buy Bitcoin and short the Bitcoin perpetual, I'm effectively creating a 20 to 40% annualized return in US dollars. And that's basically wow, me yeah. just like lending synthetic dollars into the that's crypto space. It's because there's like- You can arm it, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, there's it's a lot of cashews. Arb. There's a lot of carry what, what, trees. Yeah, what's the there, what's the? It, it's an arb. Why is it not an arb? Why, why is it an arb and not a? Well, because you could have the spread block against you. Okay. You need to maintain okay. margin. You could have yeah, a okay. mass liquidation, in which case you could have your position closed on you. The exchange could get hacked. Party okay. Yeah. It's an arb. Okay. But I think it speaks to the massive demand for leverage. So to come way back to your question. It speaks to the demand for leverage. Uh, I think there's something like, you know, there's $4 trillion in the crypto space that want to be long and half a trillion willing to lend them money. And you just have this huge mismatch and it shows up interest pricing. The premium has shot way up in Q1. Um, I personally have some of these trades on doing the cash and care to harvest some of this. Just again, with my own personal money. But, um, you know, I think it's, Yes, that there is a long lever demand for the assets uh, that is probably, you know, it's an inflation play, but it certainly seems to be a play for just let's make some money. There's, a, there's quite a few of those think, in this I market think, at the moment. There's, there's lots of, there's lots of uh, you know, spot futures, you know, are, and there's, you know, triangle and our, you know, and, and whatever. I think, it, I don't know if it, it's for, I guess that's for basis trading, whatever. There's, there's yeah, lots of yeah. arbitrage in, in markets, in the crypto markets. Part of it, I guess, is the nasty nature, but you're definitely right. I mean, it's funny that you come at it from a quantitative, like for me, just being, you know, quite buried in the crypto space uh, somewhat is, most people that are in crypto just want to be long. And there, when you start, you know, it's funny, every time I talk about a cash and carry trade uh, for, uh, in, with any clients or anything like that, they're in crypto. They're like, I just, what if Bitcoin goes up 100%? I'm like, huh? I'm like, it's already up 100%. You know? so, so you do get that. So I think it is fun to structure trades in the space. So anybody that, that, that likes structuring, there's a ton of opportunity, in my opinion. And what you're talking about, those trades you're talking about are very, they're not, they're not, you know, easy, easy, but they're not, you know, insurmountable to figure out. They're not, they're not hard if you can get on those exchanges Uh, to that, to that. I'll also say, I think if you look at sort of your average wallet size, right, you've got your whales, but a lot of people who are playing in crypto are playing with $5,000, right? A 20% annualized return on a trade you put on in the crypto space for $5,000 is not attractive to most people. They're in the crypto space because they want to take 5,000 and turn it into a million. Right, you're not right. going to do that with a cash and carry trade. I look at the cash and carry trade as okay. This is like a high yield bond, right? I'm basically constructing yeah. myself a high yield bond. Now it happens to be in the crypto space, but I don't think of it as a crypto trade the same way someone else might buy Ethereum because they have a long fundamental view on it. It's yeah, a very interesting I mean, trade. There, the, so so the income in in crypto is is huge area like it's super interesting so like even the like most well-established like gemini or genesis which are like the top tier firms uh in the institutional world of crypto you can make eight and ten percent lending them dollars um now you're not long crypto your counterparty risk compared to like an ftx you know i love ftx sam don't get mad uh is lower um, and it's simpler. You don't have to like manage anything. You're literally just giving money to some of the largest players in crypto and, you know, you're against their balance sheet. But if you go further out, you can, you know, you're willing to, to take that on, uh, take on the management. There's even, even further stuff out like that. I mean, but if yeah, you take, to your point, lending dollars in the crypto space. So I'll, I'll just say FTX as an example, um, their lending rate spiked to 80% annualized yesterday yeah, saw that, yeah. for dollars. And now it's Good. not normally that high, but I, it'll I come have, all over. It'll move all around, but yeah, and you're in, you're in stable, stable coins. I'm in USDC, which yeah. I think of all the stable coins is probably the safest, but you're lending out and there's just so little dollars floating around in the space. I think the lowest right. lend rate I have is probably 10%. If I can do this crazy cash and carry trade and hopefully get, 20 to 30%, maybe juice it if I'm smart about when I, you know, if if the premium collapses, you know, take the trade early and then put it back on again, I might be able to compound a little more. Or I could just leave cash in the account and lend it out and probably pretty safely make 10%. Now, safe is is a relative, you know, again, like you do have big counterparty. I love that trade. 
No, but, no, 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 no. You can assess the counterparty risk. There's real money to be made. And the thing, even FTX and stablecoins, not the end of the world. I mean, and the, the only thing is like, yeah, I would agree with you that there's, there's like, most people just want to be, you know, I'm not sure what the phrase is. They're like thinking of yachts and Lambos when really probably the, unless, I mean, of course there, there are interesting projects to be very long, um, but, but there's also a lot of income and in sort of alpha on just the pure, um, you know, nascent taking advantage of the volatility. It's almost like volatility harvesting, but, but in, in crypto, it's probably even better than, you know, traditional market volatility harvesting. I have no idea what kind of returns you can make there. Um, maybe Chris Cole could, could tell you, Toby, since uh, apparently he's got a yacht. Uh, no, I don't know. That was, we were, that, you know those yacht weeks? Was that off camera? You know, you know that, I, don't, I don't think so. You know, it's a yacht week. It's like there's a, they're, they're not that expensive. They take a fleet and you get a... Oh, uh, they're not that expensive, says the owner. That <laughs> well, not, I don't own it. I was, I was a guest. I was so that doesn't sound out. like a value investor to me. <laughs> with, my, with my pregnant wife, it was fun. <laughs> It was a used, it was a pre-owned, a certified pre-owned yacht. What do you want from me? There's this, there's this thing called Yacht Week. They, they do it all around the world. It's like a, it's what it sounds like. It's you rent, the, rent it for a week and you get some, we, we had a Norwegian guy who came on and he, you just got to pay for his kind of food and, and then you tip them at the end of the week and they just, there's, so you don't pay really for the captain, but he just gets to sleep for free on the boat, which for these guys is all they want just so they're close to all of the, the young girls. So I was there, I was there with, it's, it's a big party, but I was there with, with married couples. So it was very sedate for us. <laughs> totally derailed. I don't know where to go from here. Where, where do we go for yacht week? I don't know. Yachts is investments. I don't know. There are guys that are in the chartering business. That's probably a good business. This is, this is a, I, I keep on, I've been saying this more and more recently, but I've been completely kind of, I'm, totally bamboozled by this market and i i um just because the 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 trends are the top line spies so smooth and then there's these huge moves underneath in particularly tech and now value's having a little value's having this little run as well which always makes me feel a bit uncomfortable because i know that that's coming to an end not, to, not in the not too distant future that, that's but, spoken like a man who's just been beaten by value for the last five years you can't even have a glimmer of hope Longer than that, you just—it's you know—it's like five years of five years of straight down. But the the five years before that wasn't you know the five years before that it did sort of outperform over that five years. But it was a weird. It spent a lot of time going sideways and down. Like I remember two thousand end of two thousand fifteen. That doesn't quite yeah. make it into this five years. That was savage. Two thousand six strong rebound. Sixteen, right? Yeah. So we're having a little run here, and like, but the run for me, because I'm quality and value, that's really only started in the last month or so. Well, growth. What's interesting to me looking at growth is it has just been beaten in yeah. the last quarter. I mean, if you start to look at some of the, like, and not that I'm big on the technicals, but you start to look at some of the technicals compared to 20 years, growth versus value. Growth is one of the largest relative drawdowns. Over over like a three month period versus value for the last twenty years, the the speed of the sell off again, that, and this is what makes this particular environment I think so difficult to navigate. Or one of the things that I when I'm looking at the portfolio I manage so difficult to navigate is if you take on too much concentration risk and you're in the wrong undercurrent, it's a violent unwind for you. So you have to either play whack a mole a lot faster and move around a lot faster, or potentially take less tracking error risk. I, I saw somebody, I saw a piece today that said that the drawdown in tech has been the biggest drawdown in any of the factors over the last 20 years. I think that's, so maybe it was 10 years. I wouldn't be surprised. Growth or tech? It might, it might've been growth, but I think it was in the context of a tech discussion, which was, but it was, I think they were talking about growth, but it's mostly tech, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I was looking at some numbers from some of the Goldman Sachs baskets that they published this morning and it is, it is a bloodbath. And what's funny is because I think people think so positively about the fangs and the fangs have just gone sideways. I mean, it's like the top level pain has not been there, but when you look at the growth basket as a whole, it's been really bad. And then pockets of the growth basket, right? Like your non-profitable growth, your high enterprise value or your highs, your high multiple stuff. Like, I mean, look, just use arc as a proxy. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, but just use Kathy Wood as a proxy. I mean, she's down her drawdown right now is 35%. Yeah. You don't, you don't think Tesla's going to 5,000? 
Um, <laughs> well, maybe, 20,000? I maybe. forgot what it was. She was at 156. Uh, A-R-K-K. The, the flagship fund was, I think it topped out at 156. And I think last time I looked, it was like 104. So it's, it's, it's a 30% drawdown at least. But they have, in, terms of, uh, in terms of flows, their flows haven't really gone backwards, which I was like, they've, I saw, they, have I saw a, one yesterday. they have a little. By the way, here's a stat for you. I just pulled this open from Goldman. Growth, their growth versus value basket has closed in the red for nine of the last 10 trading sessions and is down 18% over those sessions. I mean, I've been, on the other, I've been on the other side of that trade for five years, so I don't have you know a huge amount of sympathy. Like I just, I'm not. It's not Schadenfreude. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not enjoying it, but I'm just like. Yesterday was yeah, it, uh, their prime brokerage desk showed that last night or yesterday was one of the top five dollar net selling in U.S. tech in the last five years. Crazy. Don't 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 you guys worry about some of this stuff in the sense of like just from an investor perspective because everybody knows that like dollar weighted returns versus like the underlying returns of the strategy are like basically two very different things, right? Like the dollar weighted returns. And like, those are the kind of strategies where people really get shaken out hard, you know, like they ride the wave, they basically pile in late, they yes. basically get out late. And it's like the actual dollar for dollar in and out can be bad, even though there's nothing wrong with people who are doing like growthy strategies. But I, I don't know. I'm sure you guys know. That's not the manager's stuff, fault. But... I mean, I, I, that's definitely true. No, with it's not. Can... But I'm saying like, that's my issue with these products is like, it's, even for myself, it's hard to keep the discipline. If I had an 18% face rip off in a week, I'd be like, <laughs> what the hell just happened? Well, the, the, you can look at the volume into ARC. Like the, the volume goes up exponentially with the stock price of ARC. So there's definitely, and I saw somebody publish something yesterday that they're like, they're only a few percent away from make, having made no money collectively on a dollar weighted basis mm. um, yeah. over like five years or something I, extraordinary. I, I think like they're that. now at zero on a dollar weighted zero, basis. They've made nothing. But our, my problem with these products though. That's true well, of every strategy. Really interesting though, in my opinion, because- so, so when they started to get a ton of inflow, right, Kathy, and I don't want this to be a knock on Kathy. I think she's built a phenomenal business. I think she's done Me some too. brilliant branding stuff. She's had a really great career prior to ARC with knockout performance. Yep. Agree with that. But what's really interesting is, is she is willing to own a huge proportion of the underlying stock she's in. And it's difficult to navigate that. And you were seeing pro-cyclical effects on large inflow days, the stocks that she held a higher proportion of the underlying float of went up much more than the stuff she owned less of. And so it's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, I had arguments with people where they said, look, that's what you expect to happen. If there's increased demand for stocks, the price of those stocks should go up. I said, I agree with that. The problem is the demand here was not for the stocks she was owning. It was for Kathy. Right. The demand was for Kathy. And, and so all this money is flooding into ARC. Yeah. You're getting this pro-cyclical performance because the money going in is driving those prices higher, which makes the ETF outperform. I think you're seeing the unwind now. And, if, and it could get violent and ugly in what she's holding. And I think this just goes back to this flows over pros market environment where it's less about what you own and more about the flows driving the performance around you. Is that unusual? Do you think that this is a new... A new thing, or hasn't that? Isn't that the way it's always been? I mean, this is like the the I before Kathy even started falling over, before Ark started falling over, I, we had been discussing, uh, you know, Janus 1.0. Janus was the fund that dot com did this, exactly the same thing. They raised a lot of money and they pushed it into these uh, very similar stocks, stocks that were losing money and were thinly traded and were small cap. And Janus sort of became the market. So the Janus would get the flows, stocks would go up. Janus performance looks really good. Janus gets more flows and so on. And that works really well until it goes in reverse. And then you get the reverse happening, which is violent. Every, every time there's a definitive event in the market that we can point to and say, we know what happened, it's a supply and demand mismatch, right? Which is sort of like a very basic thing to say. But I do find it very funny that when we don't know what's going on, we have some sort of economic narrative around what's driving markets. Yeah. And then as soon as we know what's going on, it's like, no, this hedge fund was liquidating or yeah. no, it was, it was a bunch of, you know, variable annuities having to sell down exposure because market ball was up or, or no, there was a forced unwind. It, I just think that's what's always happening in the market. Yeah. Cash flow in, cash flow out. You know, that's driving a lot more than 
And, and look, I, I think it has to be. We know fundamentals are far less volatile than stock prices are. What explains all the volatility of the stock prices? Probably just a bunch of flow noise. I think it's always micro too. And when you don't know it's micro, you just say it's it's the gods, it's uh, it's economics, it's you know, <laughs> it's Gaia. You know, it's uh, it's the thunder god. It's it's something else. It's it. We've offended somebody, and we have to atone, and then the market will go back to to being normal. And then you find out, to your point, you find out it was oh, this, this hedge fund was liquidating. So don't worry about Arcagos just keep doubling down on on Viacom, right? Yeah, man, that was that's one of the the wilder things that I have seen that they could get that kind of leverage into that. I'm just amazed that he was still swinging at $20 billion. I mean, at some point you just take a little bit off the table, maybe. Well, it's not just that. I I just can't imagine the risk departments in these banks being like, well, how much are we earning on what we're lending and how big is that position now? It was just wild. And then of course the, the big, the big like laugh to me is, you know, you get all these banks, that are like, well, it's a pretty consortium and like try to make sure we're selling fairly. And Goldman Sachs is like, <laughs> <laughs> sucks to be you guys. We're front running the trade. So, Tom, to your point before about like th- these growth funds, I've got a story in one of my, I think in quantitative value about uh, the C, I think it was CGX focus fund, which was, um, no. ah, it's just going to escape me now, but the, it's a value fund. And they similarly yeah. had, uh, great returns, uh, very volatile returns over a decade. And I think I'm just blanking on the name of the manager at the moment, but at the end of that decade, they, they had returned like 11% compound through that period, I think. And then the average investor in that fund had lost like a half a percent or 2% or something like that, just because they do exactly like when the market, when the fund rips, people put money in and then they have the volatility yeah. going the other way so they sell out and then the fund rips and they put money back in again that's just that's just sort of endemic isn't it to these any strategy that's sort of a bit volatile i don't think it's a growth I thing mean, is what i'm saying you're saying it is a growth thing i don't, don't think, think it is a growth thing yeah okay Value i mean, definitely fair does. point i just in general for strategies like i i worry about like you know people's abilities cuz the idea the idea at the end of the day you're trying to get good outcome you know, and I feel like the reason probably like people it, like like risk parity or, you know, try to have a more top down approach is it keeps them a bit more sane and and just sort of just like whipping around. And I guess for strategy, I mean, for me, value is sort of, I don't know, a bit of a North Star because it's, you know, there's, there's, you know, you guys is like, you know, now value is codified or whatever and in factors or whatever. But, you know, it, it's just a, like a ingrained idea. Yeah, or, I don't know a great idea, but sort of a North Star idea that, uh, you know, merchants in Venice, like, you know, understood value investing, you know, and they bought it from here and they did it here. And it, I mean, some of it was arbitrage and some of it was sort of value investing. To so, play devil's so, advocate, know. though. To play devil's advocate, yeah. though. Like the, the growth guys would Please. say, like Kathy Wood, Kathy Wood says, I'm a deep value investor because mm. I work out where the value is going to be after this period of growth in five or 10 years time. And I'm buying at a big discount to where that's going to be. I'm thinking where we're going to be in the future. And the problem with traditional value guys is that they're looking at where the thing is now. They're not thinking about the future. Toby, this reminds me of a conversation that we had on my podcast. So that's a little (laughs) advertisement for me. (laughs) Where I was saying it's sort of this interesting market dynamic where if you want to be a value investor, the way allocators allocate is you have to stay in your style box, which means you are never allowed to say right. a growth stock is value, right? And it's this interesting thing we've done as an industry, uh, the way that we've created this divide. Why can't growth stocks be at a value to their actual growth rate, right? Well, I think that all growth investors would say that they are. Like, that's what they're trying to achieve. I just think that it's been, historically, it's been harder to do, but I think I, I kind of have to, you know, I've been trying to do these different tests where I try to buy and hold for the entire period of my data set. And it's interesting that I, one of the things that I've found is that value, the, the price relative to the fundamentals is not particularly important to the future performance. But uh, the, um, the, uh, it's, it's sort of the, it's the thing that is the most um, important, you know, it's, 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 it's not particular, it's got a very low R squared, but it is the only thing that has any R squared at all. 
Mm. It's very, I'm, I'm con- totally confused by it. Folks, uh, we're coming up on time. This is really fun. Uh, Corey, if they want to get, in, if anybody wants to get in touch with you or follow along with what you're doing, what's the best way to do that? Uh, you can follow my podcast, The Business Brew, or find me on Twitter <laughs> at Bill Brewster SCG. <laughs> uh, no, you can get me on, on Twitter at C Hofstein. Uh, check out my podcast. There's a new season out. Toby's coming up on it. I think in about a month, your episode's coming out Ooh. called Flirting with Models, if you like the quant stuff. And then I run a nascent YouTube channel that's mostly me just losing money on stupid trades called Pirates of Finance. That's a great idea. And how about you, Tom? Uh, I have my own podcast called Five Good Questions. Uh, <laughs> is that right? Is that making it right? No, I don't even know. I feel bad. I should know for JT. Uh, no, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I love, I've met a ton of people through Twitter. So thank you everybody that has ever reaches out. Um, just a ton of, uh, great community of people to meet. So Twitter, and then of course I have a website and got my email. It's probably definitely urgent to reach out to me about. All right, folks. That's, this is really fun. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Tom. This was great. Uh, thank you. See you. Bye guys. Bye guys. Shake it up, stop when the cup gets 13. Sing one, two, three, four. Cuz, cuz, cuz. No one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cuz no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it.